Would you open God's precious holy word to John 15 as we continue? This night, this series of events started in John 13, John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17 are all part of this night before our Lord's crucifixion. The night is bathed in love. Christ knows he's just wee hours from the cross. The 11 still don't fully understand and they will not until after the resurrection and then even continued instruction for 40 days. Then the ascension and Christ then 10 days later sends the Holy Spirit. It's a process. But we're down to these 11 Satan and Satan in Judas have been dismissed. This night and these words of love are not for them, but for these 11. And I will go further than that. When we get to John 17, you, will, you and I will see that Christ prays and in his prayer to the Father, thus through his prayer to the Father, applies everything that he says to these 11 to the rest of us who are in Christ, who will come to him whom the Lord God would, the Father would give to him in the ages that would be yet to come. So when we read this, we're reading what Christ says to us as well. When it started in John 13, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write, he loved him and he loved his own even to the end. Now the Greek word in that John 13 is telos, telos. And it means to the maximum, to the absolute Fulfillment of the purpose to the end of the issue. Loving his own, he loved them to his limit. Now, this is God in the flesh. Think about that statement for just a moment before we get into this. God, the Son, has accommodated himself to a human body and he is existing in time and space that he might accomplish the redemption of his own and 
as far as he can, limited by a human body. He loves his own to the limit, to the absolute limit that body will let him give his love. And of course it goes to the cross. He explains that he is in the Father, the Father is in him, and that he will send the Holy Spirit. So it's not like the love of God is limited to the life of Christ, which ceases at the cross. Of course not. The overall greater context of the teaching is that he is always with us, but he carries it in his body to the max as far as he can at that time and in that moment all the way to the cross. What more could he have done as Jesus of Nazareth in a human body? It is a night bathed in love. He said to them earlier, he's talked about love all the way through this thing. He said to them earlier that they were to keep his commands. They would show his love. Now that thought continues here. And there are three ways this love is expressed that are explained to us through Christ and his teaching here in this text of scripture. John chapter 15, we begin in verse 12. This is my commandment. And to lay my order, my commandment, my command that you love one another as I have loved you. Now that begs the question. You'll, of course, you'll note that the word for love here is agape, which comes from agape. You know about agape. And it speaks of this selfless, totally devoted love. Now, can one be commanded to love? Love is a feeling, isn't it? Is love a feeling? Or is it a duty to love? How do we love? How can we be commanded to love and what, what manifests itself from this love? How is this love manifested? Three ways for sure that are taught in this passage we're looking at today. How can we be commanded to love? Christ gives a qualifier. Here's the kicker. I have it in, I have it in red there. As I have loved you. Which causes us to ask the question within ourselves, have we ever been unlovable to Christ? I remember things I did in the fourth grade that were heinous. <laughs> they got worse. Junior high school, oh my goodness. Who in the world could have loved me 
as I entered into my teens. Now I'm old and I get cranky. Who in the world could love me at times? What about his disciples? <laughs> they were always trying to correct him. They were going to correct God. Not going to let you die. Of course not we're going to let you go. I'm going to, you know. And they would question things. Just a few verses earlier, Christ had told them about the Father and they said, how about showing us the Father? After all that Christ had said about he and the Father are one and all this, this guy says, show us the Father. And Christ says, what? All this time. And you don't know what I'm saying. Was that a lovable moment? In the same way, have you ever been around another fellow believer who is just difficult to love? You just grab them by the nap of the neck and say, I love you. How can we love? We're commanded to love one another. How can I love the unlovable? I have been a pastor, been a minister since 76, a pastor since 78. And it's funny, when I think about the characters who are unlovable, they just start pop popping through my mind. I can't stop them. Here they come from every, I think of this church. Lord, I'm really there. Ooh, that was, oh yeah, oh, I remember that guy. That I love them is proven in the fact that they are still alive or died a natural death. <laughs> so let's say when you come to me and you say, man, this guy's unlovable. I don't love him. You're commanded. It's a duty. How? Why? You're to love me as Christ has loved you. Same way, I'm to love you as Christ. So then, I come to some born again jerk <laughs> who says the dumbest things and insults me. And what do I do? I think of what Christ has done for me. He gave me salvation. He shed his blood for me. He has supported me. He has provided for me. He has comforted me. He has never left me. Never. Even in the worst of my days, never so then how can we be commanded to love in this way? To remember Christ's love for us because we are not always lovable. And then Christ can do that because 
what is back in verse verse nine, maybe a, a previous to these verses, Christ said, "As the Father has loved me, Christ loves me as the Father has loved Him." And in Christ, I love you. If you're in Christ, I love you as Christ has loved me. This is how it works. This is Christian love. It's a duty. And how does it manifest itself? What three things are we taught here? Number one, that duty of love is revealed in self-denial. Here it is. Greater love has no one than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. That he would call them friends is explained in just a second. Christ they're on their way. Christ is still teaching. They're on their way to Gethsemane. There Christ will be arrested and then mistreated and crucified and placed in the tomb. They will remember that he said, I lay down my life for my friends. How is this love, the duty of this love, revealed in me? Well, number one, through self-denial. Maybe even to the point of dying for someone, but the point made here is your life is invested in another believer. There are no chance meetings in the life that we live in Christ. There's always someone in whose life we need to invest ourselves. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit has gifted us in such a way that we have the resource spiritually that is needed just then. And we are we are spiritually aware of this. The Spirit makes us aware. It is our tendency, even for those who we don't necessarily like so much through life, it is our tendency in Christ to know that when there is a heartfelt need, we must do something. What can I do for you? I will pray and we'll see that that prayer, God makes it a meaningful prayer. We'll see that in a minute. What can I do? I'll lay aside what I thought I was going to do and, and do something for you if it's needed. This is the first manifestation of this love that we are commanded to have for one another. And Christ gives the greatest example by giving himself. And he's about to lay down his life for his friends, for those 
who are his. That's the first thing. Now, secondly, here is shared, a shared life with other believers. Look at this. You are my friends. If you do what I commanded you, what was his command? Well, here in the context, it was to love one another. No longer I call you slaves. Doulos is the word for slave in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, doulos. I agree with those who say that through the centuries, the English translators have been unfair to the church. And it's because in the Western world, we have, we have, we take such offense at the thought of slavery because of how slavery developed in the Western world. It's a horrible, awful, terrible thing in the Western world. And we think of it, and we think of it within the culture of the history that we've studied. And it, it, it goes back to how people were mistreated. They were kidnapped from the, where they lived, forced on ships and taken to another place and treated cruelly and, and sold to other people. But I thought, you know, Many English translations will say servant or bondservant. That's not a harsh enough word for the real word. Doulos means nothing else but a slave. That's all it means. It can't mean anything else. To say I'm a servant sort of sounds like that I volunteered to do this. He's, he's higher in rank than I am, so I'm going to volunteer service. That's what servant kind of means. But a slave, a slave has a master. And the master owns the slave. I did quite a bit of reading and studying about the cultures back through time, especially the cultures of kings and kingdoms. Cultures, because of the era in which they existed, required a king and required slaves, but not like we think. In earlier cultures, in earlier times, how are people going to be protected? How are they going to be provided for? How can they have any kind of uh, assurance in life uh, uh, that, that, they'll, that in bad times and in good times, they can participate in a culture and everything will be okay. How, how, that's, how does that happen? In previous cultures, you see, slaves understood their importance. And the, of course, the master or the king understood their importance. And it was a necessary existence in a culture in another day. We can't understand it really because we live in such an advanced society. But it hasn't always been that way. 
And this is a reference to the biblical world, but it is also a true reference to the relationship that exists between who we are and who he is. Curios, that's the word used in the New Testament, which means Lord. The, the, the very word itself, you know, I, you, you cannot escape lordship. Today, as you sit where you sit, you are a slave. A slave in one of two ways. You are a slave to Satan and sin, and you are a slave like that because you were stolen. Or, number two, you are a slave to Christ. A slave to sin, a slave to Satan, despises righteousness. Loves the world and the things that are in the world. Is at war with God and his Christ. Despises his word. Rejects his salvation with no apology. Living in the world and for the world. In pursuit of the things of the world. A slave to sin and Satan. Now, those people don't recognize that they're slaves. But then there are those who are slaves to Christ. And this is who we are. We're owned because we are purchased. We are bought with a price. That's a New Testament teaching. We have been redeemed. We've been snatched out of the place where, we were, where, where, where everything was utterly hopeless. And we have been purchased, redeemed, and the master is the one who paid the price. This culture of which is spoken here is a culture that befits a vast household. And within that vast household, there are things that have to be done. There's work that has to be done. All kinds of work. And there are people who cannot live in the outer regions because there are mean people out there and they will enslave you. And they are thus part of a household where the master owns them and he provides for them. He provides protection for them. And he takes care of them. This is what is spoken of here. We are slaves. We are not our own. We, we don't, we're not a part of a volunteer organization. We'll see that in a minute. A lot of things we're going to see in a minute. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. And here's the beautiful part of it. No longer I call you slaves. For the slave really doesn't know what his master is doing. However, I have called you friends because all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. In this shared life with the master, the master keeps no secrets from his slave.
in this present course of life, in this age in which we live, everything that you need to know is revealed to you in the precious holy word of God. There's nothing else. That is the complete scripture that has come to us from God Almighty. There are, there's nothing held back from us. We are told everything that we need to know for life as we move through this age. There are no secrets. What is it? Matthew 13, Christ said something like, I'm going to reveal to you things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. Something like that. And here he says, all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. All things. There are no secrets. Let's talk about this slave friend relationship. Every king, every, every household owner, every king had to have people close by whom he could trust. They were his slaves, but they became his friends. They were with him all the time, closest to him, had access to his bedchamber, had access to his throne room, had access to everywhere he was. And he shared deep things of his life and, and kept no secrets from them. And likewise, they did so with him. They even would know his plans. They were his friends. They were his slaves. But they became his friends. Because of the love and the trust that existed between them. So now these 11 have come to this point and Christ will say, you know, I'm not going to call you slaves anymore. I'm going to call you my friends. Because everything that I've heard from the father, I have made known to you. He withheld nothing from them. He's even told them he's about to die. He even told them how he was going to die and who was going to be responsible for putting him to death. Told Peter that he would deny him. Had said that he chose the 12 of them and that one of them was a devil. He didn't withhold anything from them. They were his friends. And so this is who we are in Christ presently. We share this life with Christ, a shared life so that we withhold nothing from him and he withholds nothing from us. And we have his word and his word can teach us, can strengthen us, can guide us, can comfort us. And there's nothing else to be said because he has given it all to us. There are no secrets. Is the complete manifestation of the word of God, the complete revelation of the, of the word of God, there it is. Read it. Read it again. Then read it again and keep reading it. Your friend is talking to you and telling you everything. 
that you need to know. The greatest thing that I need to know in this life is what God has said to me. Nothing else is more important. So the second way this love is revealed is revealed through a shared life. We have become intimate with Christ. If you are in Christ, it has to be this way. It's been this way in my experience. I started out in this Christian life a long time ago, and I had, of course, I had fear of Christ. I had love for Christ. I had faith in Christ. And I would pray, and thankfully, I have been such that I have had an interest in reading the Word of God, and I've read it over and over and over again. I'll tell you this. Every time I read the word of God, my friendship with Christ is closer than it was. I've learned something about Christ's love for me that I didn't know last time. It's inexhaustible. I cannot exhaust the riches of the word of God. And I get to know God better and better and better. And I have a friend who sticks to me closer than a brother. And he has proclaimed so himself. Yes, I'm redeemed. Yes, I'm a slave. And I must have a king. It couldn't be any other way. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of eternal life would it be if everything was just voluntary all the time? It's not that way. And we, we walk together and we are closer and closer and closer as he walks with me through life. Second thing then that reveals this love in my life is a shared life. The third thing is what I call strategic service. This love works itself out in my life. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's pretty simple to me. Some people get angry because such a thing as that is preached or taught. How, how much... How much clearer could it be? Christ chose me. I didn't choose Christ. I didn't love him first. First John says we love him because he first loved us. He had to give me that love. It wasn't mine. It had to be given to me. Grace. All by grace. So here's the great truth. Christ says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is what makes my walk with Christ so much more special and humbles me down to my face in the ground. Because as I said earlier, there's so much about me that is unlovable. And yet he loved me.
but he chose me. I suppose those of us who are in Christ and at last we are, we are raptured out and caught up and spend eternity with our Lord, we will spend that eternity first of all praising and glorifying him that we're even there and then secondly learning more and more about his grace and why am I here in the first place? Because of his love for me. Why? And it came from within him. There's no good in me. And yet he chose me. Not just that. Look what he says. And I appointed you. I, th- that word is it it's so rich. It, may, it can mean I purposed you. I ordained you. I like this last one though. I strategically placed you. That you should go and bear fruit. Christ says, well, let me read the rest of this statement. And your fruit should continue. So that whatever you might ask the Father in my name, he may give you. The third manifestation of this love reveals itself in my life through strategic service. Christ says, wherever you find yourself, I'll put you there. That's what he's saying. You're going to be in difficult times and among difficult people, but I put you there. I strategically placed you wherever you are. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You're not wandering through this life aimlessly looking for some way to serve me. I'm going to put you where I want you to be. That's what he says. I have strategically placed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit. And that fruit is real because it remains, it continues. (laughs) This fruit we've studied already, Christ has mentioned the three found, we've already studied this in in the context of this night and the chapters previous. And those, those, the fruit, the, the, the three foundational fruits, love, joy, and peace. I have pointed you to be where you are and where you are, you are to bear fruit and that fruit is known as real because it continues, it remains. Now there are six other fruits of the spirit Galatians mentions, but those six are built on these three, love, joy, and peace. One time, Years ago, a church where I served was divided. It was divided when I got there and 
I just preached the word, but it stayed divided and it was horrible. And I had a group of people to come to me and say, we want you to stand up on a Sunday after Sunday morning service and call for those who are on this particular side to come and stand with you and with us and we'll dismiss everybody else. Talked to my daddy about that. He said, here's what he said. Son, you're not that important. <laughs> That's what he said to me. <laughs> you are not that important. You do what you do. You keep doing what you do. But this is not what you're called to do. You're not that important. That's what he said to me. There would have been no abiding fruit. If I had followed that advice, there would have been no abiding fruit of love and joy and peace. Dear God in heaven, and I cannot know until the judgment seat of Christ, if indeed I served where I served because I was strategically placed there and I served there knowing that the Lord worked through me because fruit was born and I cannot know this until the judgment seat of Christ. I only pray that it's true. Love, joy, and peace. And those other fruits that came from that. I have strategically placed you where you are. Because I chose you, you didn't choose me. <laughs> and when that happens, you will have an effective prayer life. So that whatever you might ask the Father in my name, he may give you. That's how you see the fruit. It's a selfless Self-investing life that includes selfless prayer. It leads to this very serious prayer life. Strategically placed by the one who chose me and who has sent me forth to do what he has equipped and resourced and gifted me to do. Oh God, use it to your glory and may fruit be born out from it and may it remain and continue long after I'm away. And this is how I pray. This is the third manifestation of love in our lives. These things I command you that you love one another. Some church member gets nasty with you sometime. Just say, okay. What part of you does Christ not love? <laughs> There's no part. Love one another as I 
have loved you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners, to redeem his own. If the Lord, and only you can know this, if the Father is calling you, we have people here ready to pray for you. If you would be saved, knowing that this is what God wants in your life, we have deacons as you exit right across the hall. You'll see deacons and their wives waiting to pray with you, to come to Christ. Maybe you're here, and as a Christian, as a fellow believer, God is leading you into our fellowship, into our membership. They stand ready to pray with you as well. And we'll take care of all the details if that's what God wants in your life. What a tremendous passage of scripture for us to reflect on as we think about this night bathed in the love of Christ. Would you stand together prayerfully? We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.